It is indeed a pleasure to have this privilege to play here for you. And we, we intend to give you a very fine program, so just settle back, relax, and enjoy the moment. 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 Hey, what's going on everyone? Welcome back to another episode of Mic'd Up, an unapologetic low country-based podcast from the Charleston Activist Network. I'm your host, Mika Gadsden. And on this episode, I take you right into the room, y'all, into the space, into the community that is my first ever book club. Yes, I finally did it. I finally launched a book club. I've been meaning to or wanting to do this for some time now here in Charleston. And so on August 18th, I kicked off my inaugural book club meeting. And this episode is just going to give you the audio from that night's event. Um, The name of my book club is called the Historically Accurate Anti-Racist Book Club for Charleston. A mouthful, intentionally so, um, but I wanted to just tell you tell folks inform folks right off the bat what this book club is about it's a it's a direct assault on the white supremacist uh, practices that have whitewashed and sanitized our history Um, folks here who are part of what my friend and scholar brian has so dubbed the preservation regime over years over quite literally over centuries um what these what these institutions have done here in charleston is strip our our history and our culture or at least the one that served up to the general public and to tourists, they have stripped it of the Gullah, Black and Indigenous experience, and not to mention Latinx, Asian, on and on. We know folks of all colors and backgrounds did business, lived and thrived here in Charleston, but you would never know that if you visited Charleston for the first time and you take one of those uh, you know, infamous carriage tours. You just won't be presented with uh, an accurate retelling of history. And that's that is intentional and that is violent uh, and as racist. And so I wanted to create something, a communal space where we can unpack that and figure out, well, how did we get here? So my first uh, book club selection was authored by white folks. And a lot of people were like, uh, I thought you said this was going to center the Gullah experience. But uh, in my opinion, the book authored by Ethan J. Keitel and Blaine Roberts, Denmark Vesey's Garden, is the most comprehensive singular volume that addresses Charleston's history that I've encountered. Um, not only is it relatively new, right? I believe it was published in 2018, um, but the book also, uh, it is it, written from, as my friend and moderator of the book club, Janelle, um, Janelle Marvin mentioned, it's not written from the perspective of the oppressor. It indicts the very systems and practices that got us to where we are now. And what I love about the book is that you get to meet, you get to to meet figures, black figures, amazing, strong Gullah Geechee figures from history, and you get to know their work. And a lot of their work and activism has been lost to us because it was intentionally hidden. And this book helps us make contact with that very, very powerful, radical history. And so I felt this text was the best text. You know, the book club also sets out to help folks unpack their internalized white supremacy. Um, that And that goes for everyone of any race, even myself, who identify as a Gullah Geechee descendant, of course, um, because I live in a white supremacist patriarchal society, um, I internalize white supremacy and anti-blackness too. But I'm not really here to address, um, or the book club isn't created to to like um, to address that so much 
in black folk as it is to help white folks recognize how, I guess, in so many quote unquote benign ways, their internalized white supremacy helps to prop up this ahistorical and very violent um, uh, uh, historical like practice or preservation type of uh, of a white history of dominant culture, right? So I'm I'm hoping that members of the book club, white members of the book club, also learn how to engage with this history in a respectful manner. Um, and I've outlined how white folks can participate um, in a very very comprehensive. Uh, community agreement. Uh, you'll find out more information in the show notes on the book club and how you can engage. Um, our next month selection is edited by three black scholars. It is the Charleston syllabus. Um, and instead of getting into that, I'm just going to hop right on into this week's episode of Mic'd Up. Again, this is audio from my first August 18th book club meeting. Uh, this is where I have a quick Q&A with, well, not quick, it's about an hour long and change, <laughs> but we sit down with authors Ethan and Blaine. We discussed their book, Denmark VC's Garden. We explain, we, we talk about the, the book, we talk about why they wrote it. Um, and more importantly, um, this was a virtual book club, y'all. So we were on Facebook and YouTube. And so we were able to bring in the comments and questions of the book club members. Uh, initially, over 700 people responded to the book club sign up. Uh, over 300 people showed up to watch the book club uh, on both uh, YouTube and on Facebook and I'm so grateful for each and every member participant and, and fellow organizer so uh, and that includes Janelle and my other co-moderator Khalid uh, a Charleston native and his voice was so so needed in this discussion and he asked one of my favorite questions of the evening so without further ado here is audio from our first book club uh, discussion here here we are discussing Denmark VC's Garden with authors, with co-authors, Blaine Roberts and Ethan J. Keitel. I hope you enjoy this. Please make sure you check out the show notes if you want to sign up for next month's meeting. All right. Take care, everyone. And to all my Gullah Geechee folks, y'all stay black. Book club meeting, the first historically accurate <laughs> anti-racist book club for Charleston meeting. I'm so excited. Um, uh, guys, I'm, I'm overwhelmed. So that's a little bit of, that's driving my emotions right now, but I'm, I'm going to get into this and get into this conversation. Thank you so much for everyone who is watching. Thank you for everyone who is still purchasing Eventbrite tickets and joining us. Hopefully things go off without a hitch. Um, and I just want to jump right in there um, in the interest of time. So first and foremost, before um, we begin, I want to first say um, thank you to Tony and we have a second ASL coordinator Courtney, who is currently off screen. I wanted to say thank you to them both for providing this very necessary service for so that everyone can have access to as many people can have access to this space, uh, this community of folks who are really just um, anxious to learn and, and talk about this great book. Um, I wanted to acknowledge them. Um, but I also wanted to start, before I start any discussions in Charleston or anywhere, um, I wanna start with a land and labor acknowledgement so for those who are watching, um, for those who are viewing on uh, Facebook and on, on YouTube, I want you to take a moment. You can either sit quietly, you can close your eyes, but I want you to first, if you know of the tribes, if you know of the indigenous folk who first inhabited the land you currently are on, I want you to think about them, even if you don't know them by name, but if you do know them by name, Go ahead and drop their names, the name of that indigenous tribe or community into the comment section. 
I want to acknowledge those whose land we're on. I want to acknowledge those who were victims of genocide, those who were erased from our historical record by one way or another. I'm just going to say a couple of names, um, uh, names of, of indigenous tribes and communities, the Ashifu, the Kiowa, the Edisto, the Catawba. And I, I'll just offer you just to sit there, the Stono tribe, thank you, thank you. And I also wanna acknowledge the ancestors. Thank you, Kusolan, thank you all. I'm so happy to see the, 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 the comments. Um, I also want to uh, acknowledge the ancestors who are all in this book, <laughs> who are in this space right now. I feel them with me. I want you to invite our ancestors into this space. If there's a name from the book that you'd like to say, um, you could type that in to the comments right now. I'm gonna say Archibald Grimke. I'm gonna say Denmark VC. <laughs> I'm gonna say Gullah Jack. Mm. I'm gonna say Frederick Douglass. I'm doing the famous ones. There's some, there's some lesser known ones in there. I want to save them for y'all. Um, but I also want to call in my ancestors. I want to call in my ancestor, my, my great-grandfather who lived on Guadamala Island and whose historical record I encountered that listed him as African, which was different from the way the rest of the family was listed. And that is Enoch Gadsden from Guadamala Island, who, uh, a person who I do not know where they are buried on Guadamala. So I just wanted to start with that. Thank you for, for just joining with that. Make sure we call the ancestors in to inform this discussion. Make sure we keep them at the forefront. Angelina Grimke, keep them at the forefront of this discussion as we talk. This is what we do it for. Thank you, Heather, Robert Smalls. Um, yes, yeah, so thank you all for, for that piece. I'm gonna move on through the agenda. And um, the next bit of business is I wanna introduce my moderators, my co-moderators, um, people who reached out to me with, with extraordinary like enthusiasm um, for reading, for, for community. Um, we have here Janelle, you can wave Janelle. <laughs> and also have Khalid here. Um, Khalid is also um, a Charleston native. And um, yeah, <laughs> I'm gonna actually read Khalid's um, quickly, just read a couple of sentences just to let you know who he is. Khalid, like I said, is a, is a Charleston native. Um, he's currently studying global health in college. Um, and um, also he's hopes, he hopes to add African-American studies as a major. Uh, he loves, his love of reading came from historical fiction like The Secret Life of Bees, um, which is his favorite book. Um, yeah, and he loves work by black poets. So thank you so much, Khalid, for that. And I want to pull up a little bit about Janelle, who's a rock star. Y'all probably already know a lot about Janelle because she's just amazing. <laughs> Janelle, oh, let me see. Janelle, I think you texted me your, your bio real quick. Okay. <clears throat> I'm trying to make sure I have it. Um, Janelle, I'm about to make you, can you get off mic and say, <laughs> you can say a little bit about yourself. 
I don't sure, hold sure. Yes. Uh, I'm Janelle. I'm an educator, uh, elementary school educator, uh, mom of four. I love reading. Um, I thrive off of community, um, chips and queso. And I can almost always be found uh, either in the library or a bookstore. So thank you for having me, Nika. You know what? Chips and queso was exactly what I was trying to say. Before. <laughs> I'm like, who said just in case so? So I was trying to find that real quick. Let me hop back into the agenda. Thank you so much to my moderators. They're going to help with the, the conversation. Again, we're trying to make this more as much as, as interactive as possible. So we're doing that with, with featuring your faces, um, bringing in your comments and questions. So both um, Leslie, and shout out to Leslie, who was off camera. Shout out to Leslie Mack. Um, Leslie Mack is also going to be helping with the curation of questions and bringing them into the discussion. But, but let me get into why we're all here. We have two esteemed guests right here, and um, I'm excited. Um, I'm geeking out a little bit, I'm trying to suppress it. I'm trying to do better than I did last time, Ethan and Blaine. I was really excited. I cringe whenever I listen back to Demarvis, my, my interview from a few years ago, but I'm not, I don't cringe at your part. <laughs> um, and I just wanted to like, take this moment to actually let you both, um, let me make sure I'm not messing up. Yeah, make, let, let you both introduce yourselves. Um, I actually want to take this moment to introduce who you are, um, introduce why you're here today joining us, um, and you know what makes this book right now? What, what makes this book, um, I guess, important right now in a specific time? So I'm just gonna let you both kind of explain who you are and introduce yourselves. Okay. Do we start? Go ahead. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. I'm Ethan Keitel. Uh, I am a professor of history uh, in California. We're both professors of history in California. So we are uh, three hours away from you all, and about fifteen. 20 degrees hotter. I know it's hard to imagine hotter than Charleston in the summer, but it's about 110 right now. So if our screen happens to go blank, uh, <laughs> it's because they're doing rolling power black, uh, blackouts here in California because it's so crazy yeah, hot. But crossed. it's not as bad today as it was yesterday. Mm -hmm. Anyhow, I, I'm a professor of history at Fresno State in Central California <clears throat> and the co-author with uh, Blaine Roberts, my better half and colleague uh, of Denmark Vesey's Garden, Slavery and Memory in the Cradle of the Confederacy, which Mika so uh, generously uh, chose to debut this fantastic book club. And um, she's being very modest talking about when, when she interviewed us um, uh, two years ago while we were on our book tour. This book first came out in 2018. And and I, to be honest, I don't know if Blaine would share this sentiment, but you know, we went to seven, eight states, did 25, 30 events, and that was one of my favorite, um, if not my very favorite, we did it um, at Harold's Cabin and there was this packed upstairs room in Harold's Cabin and everyone had a cocktail and some people are eating food and we and we live streamed it on Facebook and it was really fun. So I imagine this is going to be just as much fun. Yeah. And um, another key player in that event was Itinerant Literate. So I want to give a shout out to them. Great local bookstore. We're big fans of theirs and also Blue Bicycle Books uh, downtown. They've also been very supportive of us. Um, so yes, I am Blaine Roberts, um, also teach here in Fresno. Uh, Ethan and I met in graduate school at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and of course lived in Charleston from 2005 to 2007. And that's how we became interested in the memory of slavery in the city, um, and ended up researching and writing this book. And 
Mika, I think that you're right that this book does really speak to this moment and we're humbled and, and grateful that people think so. Uh, what's kind of interesting about the book and the way a project like this evolves is that um, we didn't realize what we were writing when we set out to write it. And it kind of started as a personal exploration of some of our experiences in the city, really regarding tourism and our experiences in the city and with seeing uh, tours going around town and noticing how they were um, both good and bad. So that's kind of where the project came from. So if you've read the book, we actually started kind of at the end. The final chapter of the book deals with historical tourism. And that's where our interest and our research started. And then we kind of went back to the beginning, which would be the end of the Civil War, to trace this history of the memory of slavery. Yeah, I think it, we sort of found a story we didn't know was there. Um, uh, and uh, the, the connections to the present weren't uh, apparent to us. It was very personal. It felt like a story of, um, uh, we were we thought initially we were just writing for scholars like ourselves. And um, very quickly, though, uh, became clear that this was a larger story, even though it's about the city alone. It's a larger story that that we can uh, connect to the events that are going on. We could go on, but I don't want to uh, uh, go on too long on just this opening question. Sure. So we could say more about tourism and how we came to it, or you can direct us in a different way. Hi, my name is Mika, and I'm always muted. Um, <laughs> that's my new life now. Uh, no, I thank you so much for that. I think that was very important. I think that that um, helps people who may not have been familiar with your work prior to reading, or, you know, I know some folks are still still finishing, maybe th that helped them. And um, I do look back fondly on that, on that day at Harold's Cabin. Harold's Cabin is, is a friend, a friend of, uh, of, of, of mine um, and a great place. Um, I think there was a second part of like, the initial question that um, I wanted to raise. I'm looking at my notes now. Um, I'll ask this specifically to kickstart the questions. Um, well, I see that uh, Leslie put, um, how do you see your book factoring into a specific moment in history? Are right. there any lessons to draw from? Thank you so much. I got a, I got a producer in the house. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Well, I think the probably the best way to put it is, like we said, we didn't think it would factor into anything other than a scholarly debate initially. But frankly, uh, the world has changed over the last five or six years. Um, and I think uh, a lot of people starting um, uh, in 2015, um, starting with the tragedy at Emanuel in 2015, uh, started to realize that the way we think about our past, the way we think about the institution of slavery, and particularly the way we think about these things in a place like Charleston and in Charleston, um, speaks to the country as a whole. And it's not just an academic debate or not just something that should um, be interesting to people who work in museums or people who do historical tours, um, but it really frames how we understand our country, how we understand the citizens in our country, the place of those citizens. Um, and um, well, I'm not interested in giving any uh, speaking at all about the evil person who committed those murders in 2015. That tragedy, uh, I think, opened the eyes of a lot of people to a larger, a larger conversation that some people have been having in Charleston, uh, particularly the African-American community, 
former enslaved people and their descendants have been having for for generations that a lot of uh, the country, particularly a lot of white citizens in this country, had been ignoring. Um, and it forced people to, to, to reconcile with that, to think about the place of Confederate symbols, Confederate monuments. Um, and uh, it, it's no wonder that while um, the violent um, actions of police officers in Minnesota and other places this summer and spring and summer didn't directly relate to Confederate monuments, Confederate symbols. Four or five years after that horrible moment, everyone um, in the country knew they did relate to that. And there's a re it's, it's not surprising that there are protests immediately across um, the country at these um, sites after the, the murder of George Floyd and others. And I think that that's part of a larger convert, uh, a changing context, a changing national context that's taken place. And so I don't, I wouldn't in any way say that our book um, does anything other than sort of connect that to this long conversation that's been going on in Charleston about the place of uh, slavery in our memory. Yeah, and to add to that, it is important to emphasize, as Ethan did, that Black Charlestonians have been having this conversation about the lies at the center of much of our Southern history and American history for a long, long time. And so what we ended up hoping to do, and what I, I hope that we did, was to really uh, capture the, uh, the voices of Black Charlestonians and how they were calling out these lies from the very beginning. And so another way in which I hope that our book can add to this conversation is, you know, sometimes today you have defenders of, let's say, Confederate monuments. You have defenders of the lost cause mythology, um, accusing people of, say, being politically correct. They'll say, you're judging people in the past by the standards of the present. And that is not at all true. And one of the things that you find when you, you know, dive into the historical record is that Black Charlestonians and some white allies have been protesting the lost cause and these monuments and these memorials from the very beginning. And knowing that long history, I think is important and hopefully it can help inform the conversation that's going on today. Thank you so much. Um, and I love the fact that you, you because when I go to, if I go to McLeod or other historical sites, um, oftentimes I'll hear people who are newer to the history ask the question, well, was it really that bad? And almost um, ask, you know, was it intentional pretty much? Like was the treatment, was the mistreatment of, of black bodies was that intentional? And um, when I hear that question, it kind of reminds me of what you just offered up in, in common in terms of this was all intentional and from the beginning was a concerted effort and, and, it, and it served a very specific purpose. And so I think a lot of people really are looking for the, those trap doors and really honestly, it is what, it's the monster that, that, it's the monster that we see right there. We have to believe our believe ourselves. I wanted to just shout out Katie Dudley. Um, I know you all, I will save it for later, but I know you, your next project and Katie Dudley scholarship go hand in hand. Uh, Katie wrote a dis dissertation um, based on um, tourism in New Orleans. And of course I'm reading that, like <laughs> I'm reading that as well and I refer to it often. So thank you, Katie, so much. Um, you're a friend as well. Um, and I appreciate your comment. I wanted to just ask one question um, really quickly if we can, and then we're gonna open it up to any comments. If those who are viewing 
on YouTube and Facebook, please make sure you are submitting your comment or question. Um, submit that in the comment section. Thank you, Leslie, for the, uh, adding the prompt to the screen. This is interactive, y'all. So even though we can't see your face um, this time, we, we expect and encourage you to, to participate. But before we switch into the, the, the public Q&A, I wanted to ask you, the most recent news um, that I've been so aching to ask you is how have you felt? How have you internalized? How have you revisited the whole Calhoun Monument now that the Calhoun Monument, right. at least the top of it, is still <laughs> the base is still there, the pillar is still there. But yeah, tell me how you reflected on that moment when you saw the statue come down. Well, it, it might be important to make a confession, which is what? which is that, I mean, I think there was a part of us that just thought it's never okay. going to come down. Yeah, I was amazed. Yeah. Because uh, as you know, many of you know, black Charlestonians have been protesting this and defacing it and mocking it too for so, so long. And then of course, over the last several years, there's been uh, so much momentum and yet nothing had happened. And so um, it was a real thrill to read uh, the announcement that there was going to be an important announcement the next day about the fate of the Calhoun Monument and to see it come down. Of course, we were watching. We actually listened and, and to um, the mayor's speech in the car. Uh, we were driving somewhere, but we uh, got out our phones so that we could hear it. It was very thrilling. I think it might have been a little bit more thrilling to see you know, Bree Newsome scale the pedestal and give Calhoun a shove. Um, right. Nevertheless. Right. <laughs> um, I mean, I was struck, but well, so in 2015, a couple months before the manual tragedy, the um, we were at a public event talking about the history of the Calhoun Monument. It in was Charleston. In Charleston for uh, the end of the sesquicentennial of the Civil War. It was an event, it was in, at the Dock Street Theater, big crowd. Uh, we were there with a bunch of other scholars, David Blight and um, several other scholars of historical memory. And we were in the Q&A and someone asked us towards the end a question that was basically, we've been talking about Calhoun Monument, just other Confederate and, and uh, monuments like that. And someone asked something to the effect of, you know, when are we going to ever do anything about these monuments? You know, are these monuments ever going to come down? And the panel that was up there just all kind of collectively sort of took a breath. And, and then David uh, Blake uh, sort of sighed. And the sigh was kind of like this expression of, you know, we've been writing about these things for a long time. And the black community in Charleston has been protesting these things for a much longer time and nothing's happened. And it was sort of this resignation almost that, that, that I mean, I, if, that, if you had asked me at that moment, I would have said, yeah, that's, it's just not going to happen. Um, so, Confederate monuments weren't removed. And then it starts to change. But even then, even a month ago, even three months ago, I would have said the Calhoun monument's not coming down. Charleston, they, they, they can't even come up with a plaque, agree on a plaque, you know? Can, can, oh, Blaine, I didn't want to cut you it's off. It kind of speaks to the fact that sometimes we as historians lack imagination. If we write about activism in the past, um, we're even activists ourselves, but uh, you know, it can be difficult to sometimes imagine a new future. Um, and so I think we owe a lot to the activists on the ground in Charleston for pushing so hard yeah. to make the city do what it needed to do. I think, uh, I'm on mute. oh yes, okay, cool. Oh, we got a good switch. Yeah, thank you so much, uh, Tony, Courtney. Um, I think what I wanted to offer up too was 
and and I don't, I'm not going to I'm not going to say anything definitively, but you know the Heritage Act, um, which protects Confederate, Confederate monuments, that has been used so long to protect the Calhoun Monument, and and we knew it wasn't a Confederate monument. However, I think even the mystery around um, because all of my life I was told that that, that statue belonged to another an, a, an entity outside of the city and the city the city's hands were tied. However, it came down. The city said, oh, we've owned it. We've owned it the whole time. So again, again, being honest and being forthright with with black people, with the city um, at large about these monuments and who erected it. And, and you know, it, a white political will is something I always refer to mm-hmm. when I think. I think we saw that really inform the decision around the Calhoun Monument. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for um, adding the prompt, Leslie. Um, as you just saw, we want um, folks of color to offer a comment. I see there's one from Brianna Collier. Uh, those of us that have read the book and are part of these types of groups are invested in learning true history and bringing about change. How do we get these type of types of texts in the for, to the forefront and force those who may be reluctant to learn? Good question, Brianna. Oh, wow. Great question. Um, I wish I knew the answer. Um, well, let me just say before I don't know. I mean, yeah, you know, it's simple answers could be like you know improve our educational system, put more money into education, and and you know I put the right people in charge. But th- those are those are big mountains to climb. I mean, I do trying to to maybe be think more, have a greater imagination. Um, uh, I, I guess one one positive uh, thing we can take away from the last uh, five or six years is that people today, I think, have um, connect people across the country. And when I say people, I think I mean more white people than 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 people of color. Uh, because people of color have known this for a long, long time. Uh, but white people across the country, I think, realize in a way they didn't in 2015, they realize that the Confederate flag is inextricably tied to white supremacism. Mm-hmm. The Confederate monuments are inextricably tied to that. A good proportion of the white members of this country realize that in a way that they didn't in 2015. Um, ridiculous that they didn't. But, yeah. And and so, I, I mean, in that way, I mean, the protests and, and that's the result of work on the street. Yeah. Um, that's the result of people from, you know, Brie Newsom scaling the Confederate flag in Columbia to the, the campaign to bring down the Confederate monuments in New Orleans uh, a couple of years later to all of the protests uh, revolving around um, uh, the aftermath of the Floyd murders and other murders uh, this summer. That work worked uh to, to you know sort of eloquently put it and so that leads me to think that that there are ways to change people's minds um but it's so hard and we can't expect people to do that all the time um so how i mean that question was a great one how do you do it through an educational system how do you bring um uh you know works of history works of literature that, that do speak to the truth about the past um out to people uh that's a that's a tough question yeah it is um i think that the point about activism is really important you know a lot of the ideas and concepts um that are now really kind of mainstream intersectionality for example right mm-hmm. these have been floating around um in academic communities and activist communities for a really long time but when activists hit the streets 
they're the ones who are really responsible for, I think, sharing this knowledge and this history with the wider public. And public spaces like Twitter, for all of its faults, I think can be very useful in terms of connecting academics and activists and creating these really kind of symbiotic relationships um, to support this kind of work. One kind of concrete thing that um, I would um, offer as an, an answer to this question, I do think that state standards are really important uh, in terms of the K through 12 educational mm -hmm. system. And because they, they guide what teachers sure. are doing. And so one concrete thing that people might think about um, is trying to find ways to become involved in shaping those standards in their states, because I think that that can matter and have a real impact in terms of what teachers um, teach in the classroom and what they feel they have permission to teach mm -hmm. in the classroom. Mm -hmm. And resources. And the resources, that's right. And I do think that fortunately there are, beyond, above and beyond the standards world, you know, there are organizations um, academic institutions, others that are trying to provide sort of alternative curricula, um, uh, uh, how to teach um, uh, teach the hard history of slavery, for instance. There was an entire website and, and companion book that came out, I don't know, four or five years ago. Um, uh, SPLC. Yeah, yeah. By, uh, yeah, by the SPLC, the Southern Poverty Law Center. Um, and so those things um, provide alternatives, but you know, it's a special teacher that has the that can carve away the time and maybe has an administration that allows them to carve away the time to do something that's outside the standards, that goes yeah. beyond the standards. Thank you so much. Um, do we have a next question from Najima? What's up, Najima? Um, from an academic, historic, and cultural perspective, please give your opinion on this cons consistently oppressive dismal <laughs> of black, uh, dismissal, excuse me, dismissal. I have my glasses on too. Dismissal of black, native Black Charlestonian voice. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Sure. I mean, this is something that's at least to, to view the question through our book and what we in our research, something that's been around and has happened um, since uh, since 1865. And our book really focuses on 1865 to the present. But but uh, African local African-Americans um, are often being overshadowed by by a host of different groups are being ignored by a host of different groups. Um, uh, one thing, one sort of bright spot uh, that you can see in our uh, history is that, and this is sort of a, probably the most surprising thing that we discovered while doing research for the book was, was, and we knew about the Reconstruction period and all that it entailed, but but that it that it was this alternate moment for our historical memory and for Charleston's historical memory. It was a time where where um, African American Native African American voices, Native Black Charleston voices. Were, were not as ignored as they would be later. I don't want to say that they were always put front and center and that I don't want to say that they weren't derided um, in local newspapers, they were. Um, but there was a place for um, uh, freed people to uh, collectively voice their opinion, um, mm -hmm. to host emancipation celebrations in public in, in the center, center squares to take over the city in certain moments. Uh, and then certainly to have a political place um, in, in the city government and the state government in the late 1860s and the 1870s. That all goes away. And certainly the, the dominant theme in our book is the the um, suppression of those voices. Yeah. And which is really 
I, it's not total. We can't say that because um, Black African-American memories of slavery really do thrive during segregation. It's just that they're thriving outside of public spaces, more kind of private spaces, families, churches, and schools. You know, that it, that's a very important question. Why has this happened? And we could probably talk all day about it. I think on some level, uh, there's an inability uh, among some white Charlestonians, white Americans in general, to really just kind of recognize the dignity and inherent humanity of African-Americans. There's just one thing that pops to mind that happened on a historical tour in Charleston back in 2008 or nine, I think we talk about it in the book. We were on a carriage tour and um, we, the tour guide was talking about early Charleston in the 1700s and made a comment that, 85% of Charlestonians then were English and the other 15% were French Huguenots. Mm. And I just, just reread that part. And yeah. I, because that, all, the first time I read that, it jumped out at me. Like, how can you just gloss over? No, and, I mean, just the majority. I'm ignoring <laughs> the majority population of this place. It's, it's breathtaking, really. Um, but it also it also requires a lot of energy to do that. Like you have yeah. to erase an entire part, like an, an entire sure. culture. Najima brought up the black the black Charlestonian voice, but even you know the indigenous. We, that's really like absent. Um, to, you and frankly, it's it's also reflects you know this tour guide and there are plenty of good tour guides in Charleston. Right. Also, a lot of those who are not well trained in variety on a variety of fronts, and it reflected the the absolute ignorance. Because if you if you go into historical sources, everybody, uh, even the, the 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 most racist white visitors, all they could talk about is how everybody on the street was African American because it was an unusual experience for them for them being from other colonies or being from mainland England. Um, mm -hmm. uh, so so it was everywhere. It, 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 can't ignore unless you want to. It takes work, as you suggested. Mm -hmm. It takes work. Okay, so we have the next question. I'm going to bring Janelle on as our moderator. She's going to come off mute. And I would love for Janelle to pose her question. She had a great one. She had, and whichever question you want, um, Janelle. Okay. <laughs> okay. Hi, Ethan and Blaine. Um, in Chapter 7, The Sounds of Slavery, uh, you mentioned how the exclusion of Blacks from public spaces contributed to the lack of their power in challenging behaviors, such as the appropriation of the Gullah spirituals mm -hmm. by white singers of the Society for the Preservation of Spirituals. Um, my question is, as white authors, have you found yourselves in situations where the Black experience is represented without Black input? And what advice do you have for the non-BIPOC community in challenging such practices? Oh, wow. <laughs> Think about that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and while you're thinking about that, um, I'll funnel the question to the comment area as well. If you are a part of the, um, if you are a part of the Black Indigenous uh, people of color community, um, mm -hmm. we still see this in many organizations and businesses today where um, our voices are left out. So my question to the attendees in that community um, is, what can we do to demand access, and should we just create our own seats at the table, um, and what can we do to get our voices heard? Well, so I'm the that's a I'm going to try to approach this through the lens of our book a little bit, and then and then we can maybe broaden out from that. I mean, one of the the 
the so leaving aside our authorship and the fact that we're two white authors writing about this, which is you know has it has its own um, you know it yep. raises its own issues. One of the challenges we felt in just doing this book is, um, and this actually came up early on when we were first um, uh, putting together a proposal for the manuscript uh, and sending it to an early press, and some of the feedback we got was was you're not going to find enough on African of uh, there's not enough African American voices out there. They, didn't, they haven't been talking about this. They haven't been writing about this. Or they, maybe a little bit more honestly, they haven't been, we haven't recorded and written down and kept those memories. So you're not going to find a story. All you're going to find is a story of denial and forgetting by white citizens. That's That was the sort of feedback that we had gotten. Um, and that's not what we found when we really started digging into the historical record. But you have to work mostly because of Jim Crow prejudice. You have to work an awful lot harder to find those African-American voices and experiences. Um, uh, take even the chapter on, on music and, and the sounds of slavery, which is set in the Jim Crow period in the 20s and 30s primarily. It was much harder. To, the, the Society for Preservation of Spirituals, and if you haven't read this part of the book, please do. I think it's some of the most bizarre, interesting stuff we, we write about. These elite sons and daughters and grandsons and daughters of planters and, and uh, who dress up like the plantation elite, and then sing Gullah spirituals. I mean, this is crazy stuff. <laughs> right. We're actually, that that's actually like just we're seeing that being challenged. We're seeing uh, folks reclaim their Gullah heritage back from like a Geechee boy. Yeah. Rit, oh, yeah right. Like sure. you know, um, they got a they were called out in the New York Times. But black folks, like like with the Calhoun statue, black folks have been yelling for for years about how this this white family able to profit off of Gullah Geechee care, uh, Gullah Geechee culture. Yeah. Um, and, and profit and, and you know and just rise to this level like, and yet it, it's so it's so um, yeah it happens all the time so and to be um, honest one of the things in the aftermath people asked us what didn't we write what you know what did you what did you regret you didn't do and what did you regret you didn't in a chapter on food yeah was oh. we, we were like oh yeah how did we possibly finish this book and then not have a chapter on food yeah um, I think that would have you would have started another war with that like <laughs> I ain't I ain't gonna lie, food. <laughs> right. History, history is one thing, but food. Woo. Yeah. <laughs> right. right. Um, but to not, sort of get back to your question and talking about how you um, recover these voices, I mean, one of the things that has been so important is the oral tradition in African American families in the Low Country, and then people coming along and putting those down on paper so that they are available for scholars. Um, the other thing that is kind of odd is that even though white Charlestonians often wanted to ignore and dismiss black Charlestonians and what they were interested in and their memories, they couldn't help themselves sometimes. And so if you look at old issues of the News and Courier, that's what it used to be called, or the Charleston Evening Post, there are st it's story after story after story of black Charlestonians and their church meetings and their political meetings. And they are riddled with demeaning stereotypes and racism and everything that you might imagine. Um, but if you know that going in and you know how to read those things um, for what they are, they can be really revealing sources, um, both in terms of basically the racism of white Charlestonians, but also in trying to uncover and recover some of what the black community was doing in the city. 
So I don't know if we really answered I don't know either, question, but it's I mean, a, it's, it's a, a good one, and I wish I had a question. better answer. <laughs> it's a really good one. No, I, I think you did. I think you did. Thank you. Thank you, Janelle. Um, and uh, I wanted to just uh, shout out a comment that just caught my eye from Margaret. Is it, uh, is it Selder? Uh, S-E-I-D. Yeah, yeah. Um, Margaret. Yeah, uh, Margaret. She shouted out Alfonso Brown, another key. You know, you mentioned Alfonso. Thank you so much. Like, you mentioned Alf Alfonso and and what he his the, the space that he occupied in the tourism industry and and um, you know it came it was born out of you know a, a need or want desire to to see Gullah Geechee and African American stories told more accurately um, in Charleston. So. Thank you so much for that. Um, just to riff on that for a little quick moment. I mean, that's yeah. one of the, you know, Blaine said at the very beginning that one of the things that got us interested in this was living in Charleston and in the mid 2000s and uh, exploring historical tourism. And um, we took some of the uh, god awful tours that existed <laughs> at the time. And we also took a number of Alfonso Brown's tours um, and and the the ways in which his tours were um, a photo negative of uh, you know, mm. an entirely different story, despite going to the same place, right? Um, going down to the battery and one tells the story of, of, of Fort Sumter and the de decline of this um, romantic, glorious um, uh, cavalier um, uh, community. And, and then Alfonso Brown tells the story of, of looking across to Sullivan's Island and, and the pest house there and, and enslaved people being brought in. and. That that was really, I think, um, laid the the seed in some ways for our own beginning to say, "Wow, there's a there's a segregated tourism industry here. How long has this gone on?" And we started to pull at the thread. So yeah, I mean, Alfonso Brown is he's been a pioneer um, and is still doing great work. Um, you know, since the since the early 1980s. Yeah, yeah, I and think, he does uh, prominently in our last chapter. He does. Uh, yeah. Ended up living. If you've read our book, you know that we talk about the search for a place to live in Charleston. We ended up living at the corner of Bull and Pitt Streets. And so, what we could do, we were on the second floor, is we could look out and see the carriage tours. Many of them were the Old South Company. Those are the ones that are driven by the people in the kind of faux Confederate uniform costumes. So, we could see them turning down Pitt Street to head down to the battery. And we would see Alfonso and his Gullah Tours van going down Bull Street to pass the uh, block where Denmark VC lived. And then of course, to go by the Avery Research Center, which used to be the Avery Normal Institute. Mm -hmm. And so it was like this very symbolic thing that happened at the corner where we lived. Um, and that was mm -hmm. a, a kind of important moment for us in terms of understanding what was going on in terms of remembering slavery. I think that's remarkable. Thank you for that. Um, that's so remarkable to kind of even imagine you watching, you yeah. know, this one. And I always call him Captain Crunch. I'm I'm trying not to be negative towards you, like the Pope Confederate, but um, yeah, you see see the one carriage go that way, and then the other tourists go the other way, and and, and that's how it feels. It feels like two Charlestons, and and you mentioned yeah. that too toward the latter the latter part of the book about even the plantations who were trying to address slavery's history, they would have segregated tours. So even so you could opt out and that feel like that's what a lot of tourists are faced with are these choices where it should be one uniform choice. Um, I, I wanted to, I, I sent out some questions a couple of hours, some prompts, some things to ponder um, to, to folks who were interacting. I actually didn't want to create book club questions. I wanted folks to kind of 
uh, interact with this book a little bit differently, but this is just one question. I, I, I'm going to pull one question for you both. Um, and I think you, are, you already kind of touched on uh, where we are in recent. Um, I, I wanted to ask you, I, I often frame uh, the erasure, the historical erasure of Black and Gullah culture as violence. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, one question I pose to folks is, uh, 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 what do you think, what is, what is the most harmful side effect of erasing um, a whole culture from a, a, a cultural experience or tourism industry here? Oh, wow. wow. I know, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> the most harmful. I, there's so many. There's uh, so many. I, because I, I honestly, the, 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 the real quick, the, the club is talk. we want to dismantle, we want to help folks. Yeah begin to dismantle white supremacy. I think folks don't think of it as a violent act. They don't right. think of yeah. it as, oh no, this is actually gonna have huge ramifications for folks, not just, oh, a hidden history. It actually hurts people. Yes. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, to put it most simply, the I think that the erasure of the African-American experience as being at the center of the American experience, I think, I, I mean, as a historian, the historian in me doesn't like to have to linger on the present. I like to be able to talk about it, about, but it's really about the present and how we understand what our, who is, uh, who makes up our country, what make, what are the traditions uh, in our country, what are the practices in our country, and um, how we make our country better, right? Got it. We can't even, you know, use better anymore because of, you know, people are in the White House right now. But, 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 you know, if if you don't have an accurate understanding of your past you're not going to try to redress problems produced by that past. You're not even going to recognize them as problems, right? You're, you're going to not understand that there is a centuries long tradition of voter suppression and that the efforts made towards voter suppression today and in the last 10 years are just a tweak in the Jim Crow era efforts to suppress African-American votes. Um, uh, so if you don't know that past, you can, oh yeah, they honestly are really worried that they're people who are, who are trying to pose as others and, and vote illegally, right? You know, they're, if you don't understand that. So that's just a, a kind of simple, um, uh, point, but I think it's, 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 it's with every element in our modern culture and our modern, uh, politics. Yeah. And to kind of take your question and relate it back to the central theme of our book, you know, the fact that there is a true memory of slavery and really a false memory of slavery. And we try to, you know, track how those were used and changed over time to the extent that they did change. The false memory of slavery, this kind of romanticized, whitewashed memory. It says that, you know, slavery wasn't all that bad. Um, It wasn't that violent. Uh, It did not steal the livelihoods and the bodies of slaves. It wasn't responsible for the wealth of white Charlestonians and white Americans. You know, when you do that, um, that has an impact in the, in the present because then people are able to say, well, what about this reparation stuff? Mm-hmm. You know, we don't need to worry about that because slavery wasn't that big of a deal. It wasn't that bad. It wasn't that central to our nation's history. It was not that central to the generation of white wealth. And so or it was it was a benevolent kind thing. And, and, and you know, the, the worst example of that are those folks who start t- spouting off. Well, you know, people were saved. You should be you know, gl- grateful and lucky and that yeah. kind of nonsense. So, yeah. So, you know, that's a type of erasure of 
gulliculture, not quite what you were asking about, but, but it's important mm -hmm. because understanding that that memory is really false, falsified, mm -hmm. um, matters for the policies that we pursue today. And it matters for how Americans um, think about solutions to current racial and economic inequality. It, it, it also American, oh. right? And, and, you know, yeah, you know, there's most of them. Too much of white America has a white vision of America, mm -hmm. right? Has a white vision of the South. You know, I talk to my students here in California about this all the time. When they say when you say Southerner, they think white Southerner, right? There are no black Southerners in their imagination. Well, that's the that's the thing too. Even with um, not to put bring too many issues into one conversation, but even with like the Colin Kaepernick. Uh, kneeling, right? And uh, we know that a veteran told him to kneel instead of sit. Mm -hmm. And then the whole thing was, well, that flag symbolizes my forefathers. I'm like, well, black men and women served in the military. Like, Absolutely. It was all, it's, it's, again, it's, it's like, uh, who who has a monopoly? I, I guess I'm borrowing this from you both. Who has a monopoly on over historical memory? Mm -hmm. um, and I think a lot of people, a lot of white folks think that they do. Before mm -hmm. we get to Kylie's question, um, who you know what? Let's get to Kali's question right now. Go ahead. I wanted to bring him on. So he made a comment, I believe, uh, or a question. So go ahead, Kali. I'm gonna let you get off mute. Do your thing. Yeah. So, um, hi. So just reading this book, um, I was just like remembering um, all of like uh, my memories of Black Joy in Charleston, um, you know, through the street. Um, so like the Mozart Festival, which is very small now, um, and even just like our parade, so the National um, Pain Day Parade, mm -hmm. um, like the Homecoming Parade, those things are like so small now, like put back, like you can't really see them. Right. And, um, and I just looking at uh, how you talk so, so much about like the black churches and churches that don't even exist anymore. Um, I was wondering, are black churches the last site of black joy um, on the Charleston Peninsula? That's a good because question. It, and and like, sadly, so like like I said, like all of these events um, are like not really uh, in Charleston anymore, or they're like very small, and they are only certain areas. Um, but it seems that like this is the only place where black people can really go freely. You know, without being overly police, um, you know, and just um, joy. Yeah, well, I would not want to speak to what is going on necessarily in Black churches in the peninsula today, or, or elsewhere, or elsewhere. Since you know, I haven't been, but I think that kind of implicit in your question is the fact that the peninsula has gentrified um, so much, and so that a all of these celebrations that we document in the book, the Emancipation Days and, you know, the um, Fourth of July, Tulalu, all of these things were happening on the peninsula because the peninsula was really residentially integrated in a, in a way that probably would surprise most um, white and black southerners in other cities, right, for much of the 20th century. Um, it was kind of unique in that way. And um, what has happened over time, of course, is that many Black Charlestonians have been kind of pushed out. And so it does seem as though the opportunities and the spaces are not as great um, as they once 
were. I think that that's kind of one thing that I would. Well, yeah, say. I mean, in some ways, um, while they're not exactly parallel, the the um, that's that recent phenomena kind of mirrors what happens as Jim Crow is implemented in the city in the 18, 1880s, 1890s, and 19, early 1900s as these very public festivals uh, like Tulalu, like the Emancipation Day celebrations are happening in downtown Charleston uh, during Reconstruction that, 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 that um, White Point Garden or Marion Square um, are, are places of, of African-American joy, of celebrating the end of this institution, of celebrating feeling like you belong in this country. Um, you know, we wrote a piece um, a few years ago um, in the Atlantic um, talking about how the 4th of July was a black holiday in the late 19th century, and it was. And, and that's not to say that African-Americans don't continue to celebrate it, but it was in the South, if you were celebrating the 4th of July, you were an African-American or a white Republican aligning with them. Uh, you were not a conservative white Democrat. That's right. You didn't want to be part of that. Right. But that is, they're driven out. Those celebrations are driven out. And they're not just political, they're political, but they're also um, uh, dances and uh, fish fries and parties and people picnicking and family events. You know, Mamie Garvin um, uh, feels writes about this really movingly in, in Lemon Swamp about how her family would yeah. go and at the tail end of it after a lot of the, the most organized and pushed away. And so the gentrification has sort of, you know, um, I don't know, it's kind of an, an, an echo of yeah. that as, as, then black churches themselves and black African-American people are pushed out of those spaces. So, I mean, I certainly wouldn't want to speak to where, where the sites and spaces for that sort of expression are today, but, but, you know, in some ways there's a lot of loss there to my mind. Well, I feel as if a renaissance is, is just has to happen. I think a, a renaissance has, has to, and I love the fact that's why I wanted Khalid here because, you know, him being uh, someone younger than me and also born and raised here in Charleston he has those memories that I don't. Sure. I have some of those memories from high school um, when I went to St. Andrews and shout out, you shout out St. Andrews in the book as well. Um, the, oddly enough, the experiences in St. Andrews are what I dealt with in the late nineties um, mm -hmm. about black culture. But but Kylie's experience, I remember those parades, especially the ones involving Burke High School and marching bands mm -hmm. were way bigger. And so, you know, these places for black joy have just solely just, um, just dissolved and we've seen these black churches just leave the peninsula one after the other. Um, yeah. So uh, thank you so much, Khalid. I think that was a great question. I'm actually going to like meditate on that and keep asking that question seriously, because it's, uh, we need to bring it back. We need a renaissance. Yeah. And yeah, thank yeah. you, Khalid. Um, and I'm keep, I'm keeping my eye on, on everything. And I just want to say thank you um, real quick. Thank you all, for everyone watching on Facebook and uh, YouTube. If you see me looking down, I'm looking at my phone, just trying to make sure we stay on task. Um, thank you for queuing up the next question. Uh, it was from a Facebook user. We kind of, kind of, you know, uh, made it a little more succinct. In your research, did you find out more about how the church influenced slavery and their involvement during Reconstruction? Now, I don't know if they mean the black church or the white. Well, right. you know, actually, that, that, that's why it's a good question, yeah. because uh, it demands that we be specific when we answer. And mm -hmm. I think the answer would be that the white churches in Charleston had a very different view of slavery than the black churches in Charleston. And so we talk a little bit about uh, in the beginning of the book, um, some white ministers in town, of course, saying that slavery was good and benevolent, and this was the natural state of um, Africans who had been, you know, 
um, brought against their will from Africa. Um, but then, of course, um, black churches really being uh, sites of liberation and reading the Bible um, in very different ways. And this, of course, really gets at the story of Denmark VC himself. Right. I mean, his, his, he's certainly the, his church, um, uh, becomes a manual church um, called the African Church at the time, uh, is uh, a place where VZ and others are uh, sharing information, sharing knowledge, sharing um, uh, a different um, a vision of slavery, a different vision of what uh, is going on in the world and potential to resist uh, slavery. And as a result, um, when their plot to um, free themselves, liberate themselves and flee the city, um, when white authorities uh, find out about it, you know, they, they lash out, they, they dismantle uh, a manual, they destroy it and sell it off for the, the lumber and effectively eventually outlaw black churches um, and that lasts until 1865. And in 1865, one of the first things that that black communities uh, do um, is they start to rebuild churches. And it's um, VZ's son who rebuilds the, the first or the second iteration of the African Church Emanuel in the immediate wake of the Civil War. And then during Reconstruction, the black church, uh, African-American churches, I should say, is not one church. Mm-hmm. Um, they are they are central to to uh, cultivating um, a, a sense of community, but also a political. They're very political mm-hmm. in the 1860s and 1870s. They are the center of, of, of Republican and you know, Republican is not very different from our Republican right. today. It's, yeah. the, it's the progressive side of the political spectrum. They are the center um, there. That's where they're having meetings. That's where they're um, drafting petitions. That's where they're starting and, 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 and ending some of these uh, parades that are going on. Um, uh, and so that it's, a, it's central to, to both slavery and its aftermath, both on the white and African-American side. Yeah, right. Um, your comment about the, the rebuilding of, of the church with, um, reminds me of, uh, shout out to Doug Egerton, because uh, yeah. I know, yeah, he covered that. I, Shout out to him for, for rocking the t-shirt too. Thank you all for that. <laughs> but um, I love, I love, uh, I, you know, got into his work uh, around reconstruction is very, very good. Um, I hope I pronounced his last name right. Is it Egerton or Egerton? Is Egerton? You know, that's one of those questions where we're comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, you never talk about your friend's last name. <laughs> I, you know, for the longest, I was calling Janelle by her Instagram name because I forgot her last name was Marvin. Like, uh, so you yeah. have to know that Doug has a VC co-conspirator. Yeah, that's, that's, what I, that's what I was thinking. <laughs> yeah, I sent it to him, so he, he was very, very excited. You don't know how big of a moment that is. Okay, um, I think there's another question. We're swapping out interpreters, but I, yeah, here we go. Jen Hartman, shout out, Jen. Um, yeah, this should be required reading for all Charlestonians. Is there a consolidated Reader's right. Digest Ooh. version of the book? Ooh, yeah. That's a. You know, there's not. There's not. You know, no, we, but we could take your question and use it to pressure the right. publisher. So we did have a um, early on when after our book came out in 2018, a number of people, especially our preface, which is really a. 30-page history of the rise and fall of slavery. The rest of the book is about how the battle over the memory of it, but the first 30 pages in the preface beyond our introduction is a, is a history of slavery in Charleston. And we did talk, we had a number, I had several folks who worked at um, historical sites in Charleston who really like said that they had 
photocopied that and given that section to everyone who worked there um, uh, because it was, you know, this succinct Reader's Digest version, as the, as, as the question just um, uh, put it, uh, version of slavery in Charleston that they wanted everyone there, to, to, at least who worked there, to know, to be able to answer any question. And so we did talk a little bit with our publisher about, you know, could we put together a, a kind of um, pamphlet version of that that we that could be sell, sold at every bookstore? And, and hey, let's let's just, let's uh, pitch it to the whole Charleston um, uh, school district. Right. Um, uh, so we did talk about that early on, and then we we, we pushed out a quick paperback because the book was successful and never went back to that question. But that would have only been that that early part about the history of slavery in Charleston. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. I, I like the idea. I'd be interested to know what um, the, this questioner thinks the ideal length would be for a reader's digest version. <laughs> Seriously, for anyone else? Yeah, you know, oh, uh, wow. what, what would be long enough but not too long? That'd be interesting as a reader's digest fan. Yeah, like, yeah. I would really, really love that. Um, but I just think there needs to be like complimentary, just a lot of little. I don't know what books. Like I know how music you get all these different types of versions of music and but I really I just need some companion pieces or something, a syllabus or something. But um I think there was one more question. yes, there's a question I really wanted to tackle before we kind of steer. Um yeah, from Susanna. Thank you, Susanna, for your comment. Yeah, curious to know about it. Yeah, anyone disagree with you? Um I was caught up in a little a little bit of dust up with uh, some Southern Charm folk, uh some Calhoun that. But but um, it brought up a lot of folks kind of like wrestling for memory, like get wrestling for that monopoly of public memory. And yeah. I wonder if there's any you know white descendants like, nah, this is not this is not true. Right. Um, so we gave a number, or we have given a number of talks that come out of the book in Charleston um, over the years, maybe three or four. Probably more. Probably more. Okay. So you know, uh, uh, the crowd that shows up to a book talk like this tends to be somewhat self-selected in that they're probably not going to be they're not looking to fight you and they're not going to be too defensive if there are you know white Charlestonians in the audience who are descended from some of these slave owning families uh, they're they're wrestling with they're their wrestling own. with it and yeah. they're you know I'm sure there's a spectrum but they're they're owning up to what that might mean for their lives um we we had one event um out at Drayton Hall, mm -hmm. where there was a descendant of someone who was very prominent in the Society for the Preservation of Spirituals. Oh. Um, a grandson of a president of that organization, when that organization was still um, really popular. Oh, wow. And, um, you know, he was struggling with, mm -hmm. I think, what that organization meant and the involvement of his family members, but he was not. He wasn't defense, super he, defensive. He wasn't super defensive. It he was, brought that up and sort of. Yeah. yeah um. Yeah. He didn't. He didn't seem defensive. To be honest, the the times where I and it's not with uh, people whose uh, family members felt insulted, but that uh, I do occasionally. I don't do it as much anymore. But I, certainly, as we were working on this book. Uh, I would occasionally enter, um, dip my foot in this Facebook group called Charleston History Before 1945. It's a very big Facebook group. Um, it's still around. It's still around. 
Still around. Oh yeah. And sometimes on. we used it as to a get resource. as a resource to get leads um, on people to people. talk to and this and that. And it's it's you know it's thirty thousand. I don't know. A lot of oh, people wow. are involved, and a lot of it is people just sharing photos. Mm-hmm. You know, here's this Charleston photo from 1947. Yeah, you know, it's curious that they they set it at 1945. Like yeah. you know, 1955, 65 civil rights history doesn't apply. Uh-huh. It's so it's not really that. Curious, um, but but right. yeah, not that. But anyhow, <laughs> and, and actually to be fair, the moderators of it are very good. They are good. And I've had a lot of interactions with them, and they're they're all very good. As is the woman who created it. Um, uh, but there is inevitably over the last five or six years, like clockwork, every two or three months, there is something about Confederate monuments, Confederate flags, what caused the Civil War. And I've been stupid enough to get drawn into some of these debates. And that's where um, that you, you get a, a lot of defensiveness, a lot of you know people just rolling out the lost cause apologies and they don't want to have any, you know, every sort of explanation a historical rationalization about slavery, about the Civil War that that comes out of the mouths of, of lost cause defenders in our book is been has been trotted out to me on that on that site, and usually I get frustrated and and, and leave. Um, but but that's about the you know we sort of expected more pushback. We expected more. So I think that the issue is one I already mentioned: who comes to book talks, and then really relatedly, who buys the book. I think that somebody who is starting out in a defensive posture mm-hmm. is probably not going to buy the book in the first place. Um, and then this gets back to the question that somebody asked earlier about how do you then share this information right. to change minds? And I think that maybe the sad reality is that there is a probably a certain set of people who just aren't ever yeah. going to be interested in reading something like this because um, it is going to implicate them right. in this larger system and they're not ready to confront that. Maybe when we've written op-eds in large national, like we've written a New York Times op-ed and um, that deals with this, these topics, which we have, and that's where we'll get emails that, you know, shut up you Californians, why are you talking to us about the South? You've never been here. And meanwhile, Blaine was born and raised in Louisiana. I lived in the Carolinas for 10 years, but they couldn't imagine that anyone could possibly have this perspective being from Charleston. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which again is a complete erasure right. of black Charlestonians. Yes. And so, um, okay, we, there's so many comments just came bubbling in. I just wanted to sum up um, because we won't be able to get to everyone. Leslie, y'all let me know if we can keep the chat. Whatever. It's a lot in the chat, but basically people say 30 pages on the whole uh, Reader's Digest, so about 30 pages. 30 pages. 30 pages. A, a, lot, a lot of people, all thir- like 30 to 50 pages, and a lot of people okay. are, are offering up, uh, you need an app, a self-guided tour slash app type deal, and okay. all, like McLeod. McLeod has something like that. Right. And and also uh, another was something that it sounded like it is it would amount to a syllabus, perhaps. Maybe maybe that. You know, I don't know. But um, I love your notes and your you have tons of notes back here that you can essentially use to draw upon and, and really inform a classroom. And, and I really, I really love the the um, the back of the book. Um, yeah, so I wanted to go ahead and like let's bring this bring this home up. again. Thank you to everyone who are, who's watching on YouTube and Facebook. But I wanted to leave this this remaining time to um, ask uh, both Blaine and Ethan what's next. And um, given given what's all going on, I know. That, you know, you got a lot going on, but what, what's next for writers like you who are so interested in, in talking about history? Yeah. Well, um, we think that we will be leaving Charleston 
metaphorically speaking. I know. Um, well, who knows? Research digest me. <laughs> that, that could be it. Um, you know, it's it's far from California, and we went back probably 15, 15 to twenty times after we moved here in two thousand and seven. And um, you know, that's that's a pretty long trip. We have two daughters here in California, so. Um, but we're not leaving Southern port cities altogether. We think that we will be moving on to a New Orleans topic that continues our interest in race um, politics. This one does not deal with memory necessarily, though I'm sure we'll touch on that some. Right. So I mean, it, it, what our focus is going to be to tell the story um, of the fight, the segregation fight in uh, New Orleans public schools. Um, the most famous character that 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 uh, individual, I should say, um, uh, involved in that is Ru Ruby Bridges. Uh, I'm wow. sure um, wow. most of the people who are watching know, at least know the name. Um, you know, she was famously memorialized in the um, uh, painting Norman Rockwell painting. Norman Rockwell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For a few years after that, mm -hmm. but it's a it's a story that actually involves several other um, heroic uh, schoolgirls. Um, uh, Black uh, New Orleans schoolgirls, second graders, um, and, and set in 1960, but it, it's it's wrapped around the presidential election of 1960 and um, Kennedy Nixon, um, and pretty nasty, vehement resistance by um, uh, very powerful white supremacists um, who were part of the White Citizens Council in New Orleans and in Louisiana. Um, so, yeah, it's a story that gets at um, race and politics and the creation of um, uh, a modern Southern Republican, um, uh, conservative Republican party. Um, so a lot of themes that, that persist, um, uh, in modern America and in the modern South. Um, yeah. We were really interested in these issues of kind of this party realignment that happens over the course of the 20th century, where the democratic party becomes the party that is interested in civil rights. Um, and we are interested in massive resistance. White Southerners resisting at all costs the call for desegregation. And it seems like um, it's a story that really needs a, a narrative history that uh, people might just pick up and start reading. Um, and New Orleans from Fresno is only two plane flights away as opposed to Charleston, which is three. So right. <laughs> a little closer. Not... Not super close, but right. a little and close to your family. Yes, yeah, my family's in Louisiana, so. But you know, oh. we, we, our oh. remains. Um, our our interest remains in in Charleston. Um, we we still have a lot of uh, great friends and colleagues and folks there who are working on important stuff that we are. You know, we say we're a little bit involved in helping to uh, work with the International African American History Museum and some of its uh, the text mm -hmm. for its exhibits. Um, uh, I, I think I think I I want to just interrupt. Please yeah. keep us posted on that because I know a lot of folks would be interested in whatever hand you had or or anything of interest to you both. Mm -hmm. um, and it's okay if you cheat on us with New Orleans, you know. So it's okay. <laughs> it's okay. Um, and I do want to put in a pitch, though. You know, you mentioned in some in your notes, um, you know, about uh, the Tuvalu historical marker. I don't know yes. why I talked to you about that. Because Heck yeah, that's where I got it from. <laughs> I pitched the mayor on that back in 2017 or 2018. I can't remember. He was interested, uh, Mayor Tecklenburg. Um, yeah. He was interested. Uh, it didn't go anywhere. Um, and then I sort of moved on to other things. It, it will. It will. That's the call of action. Yeah. 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 Over 700 people signed up to be interested in this book club. And, and I'm assuming many of them are invested, invested in, you know, writing 
the wrongs, the erasure historically, and the Tulu's historical marker, it literally came from your mouths and that is my mission to get that historical marker well, up and so to be involved in that. I mean it's it's important for so many reasons. Um, not you know, this emancipation celebration, but I think it, it is important because it provides a big space for women too, right? Yeah. Who often black women. Black women. And mm -hmm. that's one of the reasons that I like it so much. And it's mm -hmm. such an important, yeah, it's such a central place for the city, you know, and, and but it's it's imagined as a white space, right? It's imagined, you know. Imagined as a white space. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. So, and I thank you so much for, for trusting that. I think for folks who please revisit that part about the Tulu and, and revisit how Black women were treated and seen and, and viewed. And um, it's really important uh, that that's what it holds a very special place in my heart. And uh, it's not just imagined for. Well, let's get that's it. Done. Yeah, we're going to get it done. Um, at the, the scroll at the bottom, because we're so fancy and professional. You want to join um, the effort to erect uh, a historical marker at Tulu. And also, I want to bring a version of the Tulu to that part of White Point Garden. Um, please make sure you subscribe to the Charleston Activist Network um, uh, newsletter. And uh, y'all, they'll get it. But this is that this is the bit.ly link at the bottom of the screen. Um, reach out to me via DM if you miss it, email, all that good stuff. Um, I do also want to invite folks. We're going to continue this conversation. I know, again, um, I think at the beginning it was at least 200 people watching. Um, it's just we couldn't get to everyone's comment and question. We wanted to center the voices of people who are from here, Black folk who are from here. And we're going to continue this conversation um, over in Zoom. So you can hit me up in my DMs or email and you can follow. We can have a little after chat. But I want to say thank you so much. First and foremost, Courtney, Tony, thank you so much. Ethan, Blaine, thank you so much. You don't know how much this meant to me having you as, as guests at my first book club uh, meeting. Um, my co-moderators who inspired me, seriously, Janelle and Kali, thank you so much for everything you've done to help us with this space. Y'all, we're going to keep working on this. Uh, you know, this the next book is the Charleston Syllabus. So okay. Yes. <laughs> um, and so y'all, we, we're going to get this right. And, and we have gotten it right. And thank you so much to Leslie, um, who just made the production quality just yeah, amazing. amazing. <laughs> it's, this is great. And so the next one is going to be even better. And um, I'm looking forward to it. So we just want to say good night in this space. Join me in Zoom for the next, uh, for a little bit chit chat. A hundred people, that's all I can fit. <laughs> so <laughs> thank you both. And I will correspond with you via email and text. Okay. Thank you very much. Uh, thanks. Thank you.